Hello, class. How was everybody today? Ian's ready for a lesson, as promised. We're going to talk about two main things today. Why we are supposedly in love with true crime and some ethical problems with true crime and how we can solve them. So, how long do you think that people have been interested in crime? The answer is probably as long as people have existed. It's human nature to be interested in what's going on around you, especially if it's bizarre or deviant or aberrant. Think of 1888 when Jack the Ripper was prowling the streets of London and imagine a crier selling newspapers on the corner yelling out, murder, murder, read all about it. So everybody's like, oh, oh my God, another murder. Must read about it. I want to know everything about it. So everybody goes and buys the newspapers because, like they say, if it bleeds, it leads. Everybody's interested. Why? Probably the most obvious reason they want to know if they are in danger. Is there a maniac running around their neighborhood? Do they need to get a weapon, a security system, a dog, whatever? So a practical reason. Think of some crimes that you may have heard about in your newspaper or on your TV news. There's a car thief in such and such neighborhood. If you live there, you might want to make sure you lock your car, put it in your garage, whatever. There's a rapist running around this neighborhood. If you, Especially if you live alone, you might want to get a security system or take extra measures to be careful. So a lot of the news about crime that we consume serves a practical purpose to keep us safe and to keep us aware of what's going on. Crime has always fascinated people, and I don't think that that will ever change. We want to know who's doing this and why. The only difference between now and Jack the Ripper's time, 1888, is today we have TV, internet, podcasts, content of every kind is everywhere. So it's, it's much easier to learn about something that you're interested in, not just crime, but anything. If you want to know about, I don't know, how to carve figures out of vegetables, all you have to do is pick up your phone if you have a smartphone, Google it, and chances are that you will find YouTube videos, online groups, podcasts, anything that you want to know. That's just part of living in the information age. Studies indicate that, probably to nobody's surprise, interest in true crime is growing exponentially. A study conducted in 2022, which was just last year, polled 1,000 American adults. And this is a very interesting interview. You can look at it in more detail. I have the link in my show notes. It's called today.udove.com. It has all the um, like charts and everything broken down into details. And it said that half of Americans enjoy true crime content and that one in three consumes it at least once a week. And by consumes, that means books, YouTube videos, podcasts, 
internet groups, stuff like that, with the top two being TV shows and movies about crime. Only 30% of these people said that they never consume true crime content. And we've always pretty much known that women are more interested in true crime, and I'll get into that later, but studies pretty much across the board, meaning like studies of Americans, studies in the UK, wherever, they all give the number at about 70% of people who consume true crime content are female, which makes it overwhelmingly more popular among women. It's not even close. It's not even like 50-50, 60-40. It's pretty much overwhelming, and we'll explore the reasons why that is a little bit later. Fans, if you want to use that word, of true crime believes it makes people emphasize more with victims, more safety conscious, and I think this is a big one that a lot of people don't realize or give credit to. It makes us more aware of how the criminal justice system works. And I think that that's something everybody should know about. I mean, isn't that just kind of like common sense that you should know how the police work, how the courts work, what lawyers do, etc.? It just seems like a no-brainer to me. As far as books go, half of people who read say that they enjoy true crime, and 13% say it's their favorite genre. And this stat's interesting here. The most common crimes that Americans say that they like to read about, or I guess I shouldn't say read, listen to podcasts to watch stuff on, etc. Basically, the question was what crime or what types of crime interest you the most? Not surprisingly, the number one was murder. Number two was serial killers. Number three was kidnapping. And four is organized crime. And this particular statistic, I think, was probably the most fascinating. There's only one type of crime that more men than women said that they were interested in, but it was by like a hair, by like just the slimmest of margins. And you'll never guess what crime it is. I'll give you a chance to think about it and yell out an answer. But it's hacking, you know, like computer hacking. And I found this fascinating. I'm interested in hacking. But like I said, the margin, and this was just one study, the margin was so small that I don't think that you can really make anything of that. Here's how popular true crime has become. We now have entire networks like ID and Oxygen that are nothing but true crime shows. I'm sure everybody knows of the Dahmer series on Netflix, which, by the way, my source called a fictionalized series on Jeffrey Dahmer. It said that after this show or this series debuted in September of 2022, for three weeks after its debut, it was the second most watched English language series. And I don't know if that just means on Netflix, which is still quite a, a big chunk, or if it meant like all TV series. And 
I don't know what number one was. I'd be interested to know. I, by the way, I saw, I don't know, like maybe seven parts of that. And I'm not real good with, what's the word? Keeping my attention on TV. I, I kind of lose interest in it real fast. So I didn't watch all the parts. But I remember when that show was out and for a while after it, Jeffrey Dahmer was everywhere. Podcasts, online forums, groups. Everybody saw it. Everybody was talking about it. And just to give you an example, I'm on on Facebook, a lot of true crime groups and, you know, books, uh, groups about either true crime jokes and memes or discussion or true crime podcast or whatever. And that's all I saw was Dahmer, Dahmer, Dahmer. And people were like, oh, my God, can we talk about something else? Like everybody was so consumed by this. Cindy Dorfman, a true crime producer, said, quote, they want to know what makes people kill people, why murder happens, how people go missing. There's the mystery of what happens, and there's also the human psyche trying to figure it out. Why would somebody do something like this? End quote. And that's it for me, her last sentence. Why would somebody do something like this? Whenever I hear of something horrible or bizarre, that's the first thing that I want to know. Why? What would make you do that? Crime fiction. And I'm just curious. I love crime fiction, police procedurals, detective books. I started out early with Nancy Drew. I was probably like seven. So I've been like, I guess, a lifelong reader of crime fiction. But let me know if you enjoy crime fiction. It was actually popular beginning in the 18th and 19th centuries. Poe wrote detective stories, Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie. But there was a book written in 1966. And if you're familiar with true crime books, you probably already know what it is, that kind of turned crime literature on its head. And that was, of course, In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. In case you don't know or you haven't read it, it is about the murder of the Clutter family in Kansas by Dick Hickok and Perry Smith. And Truman Capote was an author. He read about all kinds of stuff. And for whatever reason, he decided to write about this crime. So he got to know these two really well. Rumors are he got to know one of them too well, if you know what I'm talking about. So this book, In Cold Blood, is what a lot of people consider to be the first true crime book. Now, here are the reasons that, some of the reasons that were drawn to crime. And by that, I mean books, podcasts, shows, all of it. People like to solve mysteries and puzzles. Think of all the mystery books, games. Remember Clue, you know, the game Clue, like Miss Peacock in the den with the knife or I don't know, whatever. I loved that game as a kid. Everybody wants to play detective and figure out who done it. Think of all the cop shows on TV. It's natural to be fascinated with mysterious things, whether you're talking about a disappearance, who killed so-and-so, UFOs, Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, all of that stuff. Another one is humans have a natural morbid curiosity, not only true crime, but, and 
if you say that, no, not me, I don't do any of those, I call bullshit. Do you rubberneck at accidents, MVAs? Do you like pimple popping videos? Do you like videos of gross, disgusting things like, I don't know, disgusting bugs or spiders, things about death? It seems like, and I know definitely with me, I will admit that death is my biggest fear. And when you explore true crime or morbid things, like things about death, it's like you can safely experience it. It makes you feel like you're in control. And it supposedly has a cathartic effect. People are obsessed with death because we fear it and we don't understand it, which makes total sense. Experts think that by being obsessed with it or interested in it, reading about it, that it might bring a gradual acceptance of death. I'm not saying yes or no, I believe this. I'm just saying that I found this out in my research. Another thing I found out was, and I don't, I don't really have an opinion on this, experiencing somebody else's suffering, like watching something being reenacted in a movie or a show or through a podcast, supposedly stimulates empathy. Again, I don't really know. It's just an idea that, that somebody came up with. This is really me. This is like my favorite. We want to explore aberrant or strange behavior. This is the psychology-based thing. We want to know why people do things. It doesn't even have to be crime. Just strange or stupid things. Like, um, I'm sure everybody's seen or heard on the news, like the segments, okay, today's dumb criminal, and it's, of course, criminal doing something really stupid. We're fascinated by this because it's, we ask ourselves, why in the world would somebody do something so stupid? What were they thinking? It's fascinating to us. And by reading about it or listening to it, we can explore things that we wouldn't do. Either dumb things or dangerous things or criminal things. And this is one that I mentioned early on. We want to protect ourselves. When we hear a podcast or watch a documentary, we may subjectively be studying what the victim does, what the perpetrator does, and learn things in order to keep ourselves safe. I have a theory that it's something evolutionary that's built into us as like a a way to keep ourselves from being hunted by predators, that it's some kind of instinct that was always in us. This is one that's pretty common. If you're like me and you like roller coasters and horror movies, you like the feeling of adrenaline, well, if you're watching, maybe, not with everybody, I guess, watching or listening to a particularly engaging show about crime, it can trigger adrenaline. And it's safe. You can do that safely. Just like a roller coaster should be safe. And watching a horror movie should be safe. Going into a haunted house should be safe. So as we know, true crime audiences largely comprised of females. So why is that? The most common theory is that we think that we'll learn something that will protect us. Women are, and this is like a paradox, this is really interesting, 
So listen carefully. Women are more likely to be victims of stuff we see in movies, podcasts, and books. But in reality, men are most likely to be the victims of violent crime. Yeah, you heard me right. In reality, men are most likely to be the victims of violent crime. So how do you explain that dichotomy? That men are the most likely victims, but you see and hear more about women. Men statistically get hurt in more, I don't want to use the word mundane, but think of gangs and gang violence. That's a lot. That's a big part of it. Bar fights, things like that. Women more likely to be victims of domestic violence. Women supposedly like to look for ways to protect themselves from predators, abusive spouses, people that may hurt them. I don't know if I buy this one so much, but there's one theory that women like stories or drama, like soap operas. I never cared for soap operas. It doesn't apply to me, but maybe to somebody. Maybe there are a lot of people who tune into a podcast to hear the, like a dramatization playing out or a story being told. And in a similar vein, there's a theory that that women tend to have more empathy. And if you're more empathetic, the story will be more relevant or interesting to you. The uh, bad side of that is listening to a podcast or watching a show about something that has personally affected you can trigger you. That's why we have trigger warnings. If you were a rape victim, common sense says that you might not want to listen to a podcast about a serial rapist or watch a documentary in which somebody gets raped. So that's why hosts try to put out trigger warnings about topics or things that happen, things that are coming up in this episode that might bother you. And there's a theory that women like true crime or enter into law enforcement in an attempt to consciously or subconsciously address past trauma. And this one I like. If you're a a battered spouse and you're unconsciously trying to work through your trauma, you may be drawn to true crime content that shows or depicts women leaving spouses. Or you might want to enter, you might want to become a lawyer. Or many people I know of become advocates for victims. There's There's a theory that true crime is cathartic and lets women entertain their aggressive impulses like fear and anger. We all have aggressive impulses. And it just seems in our culture anyway that men use things like sports and, I don't want to use the word violent, aggressive video games to get their anger out. Or, like me, yelling things at sports on TV. And the theory goes that by partaking of true crime material that women are unleashing their aggression. So what do you think? Why do you like true crime? Obviously you do or you won't be listening. But tell me what's in it for you. I really want to know. Now for the second half, let's talk about the ethics, ethical behavior behind all this true crime content. Recently, 
true crime podcasts, documentaries, etc. Not so much books, but lately it seems like a lot of us have been criticized for unethical behavior. So let's take a look at some of these claims. Many people think that true crime exploits or re-victimizes or traumatizes victims and their families. We also have a duty, and by we I mean true crime content creators, to talk about the victims in an ethical manner. We do have, I like to think anyway, a sort of code of conduct when it comes to victims, like what not to say, what can we say, and I'll get into that a little bit later. Some people think that we make profit from violence and tragedy. A lot of this is aimed at Netflix with their Dormer series. Most of the big true crime podcasts and authors I know donate money to victims, their causes. You could definitely not say that they're profiting. I said I'm friends friends with a lot of true crime authors and big creators on social media. They meet with families if the families are willing. They are totally ethical, and most of them donate at least part of the money they make to the victims and their families. And I want to stress the money they make. Probably the majority of us, if we do make anything through donations or maybe selling merch, we're just covering for our own expenses. Like I joke about keeping the lights on in the classroom. There are fees associated with podcasting, like I've said before. And with YouTube, it's probably worse with YouTube because I have a feeling that video stuff is more expensive than audio stuff. I know it's more of a hassle. And some people hire like sound editors and and script writers and stuff. But there have been a couple instances where the family of somebody that I've covered has some kind of cause or whatever, and I have sent them just a little bit of money, just what I have, what I can, and also made available to the listeners that these things exist in case you want to donate also. But actually making money off of crime, that's a stretch. Some people say true crime is biased and inaccurate and that some creators distort the truth in order to get more viewers, readers, listeners, whatever. I'm sure some do exaggerate, but outright knowingly misrepresent facts. I uh, cannot think off the top of my head of any that do that. If you do, let me know. I I honestly don't know of anybody who does that. There's something, and I actually wanted to do a whole separate lesson on this at one point, because it is big, it is real, and it is important. It's called missing white woman syndrome. True crime does concentrate on certain victims at the exclusion of others. I'm going to name some names. Gabby Petito, Mara Murray, Sherry Papini. These tend to be young, white, attractive, upper middle class women, and they are not representative of most victims like minorities, the poor, and male victims. This is a real problem. And I don't know, are people more interested in cases with female victims because most consumers of true crime are female? I don't know, it could be, but it definitely does bother me. And that 
It's ridiculous. There's no reason for that. And I personally shy away from cases of, you know, the cute young blonde cheerleader was killed. First of all, it's not nice to describe somebody as a cheerleader. How about just a, a person, a human, who maybe it, one of her many things that she did happen to be interested in cheering, but don't define somebody as cheerleader or I don't beauty queen. That's another one. That is icky. That's my own personal opinion on that. I just find that icky. The media tends to focus on sensational crimes like serial killers, which are pretty rare. And they mainly neglect the common mundane things that police deal with every day, like theft, fights, stupid, like petty crimes. Speaking of the police, I've heard criticisms that true crime both glorifies police and demonizes them. And I've listened to a few that downright hate police, and they make it very widely known. And it's very disturbing to me for obvious reasons. I do kind of take it personally because I was in law enforcement, and I don't think it's healthy. I don't like the idea of younger people turning on a podcast and hearing the hosts talk about how horrible the police are, and then the listener is going to learn this. But there are bad police, as I'm sure we all know, who do bad things. And those things definitely need to be talked about, too. So the best thing to do is to kind of stay in the middle, I think, anyway. Either way, if you go too far either way, it's a problem. Another criteria is that there's too much focus on the offenders as opposed to the victims, and that some um, content creators glorify perpetrators. Some do. I will acknowledge that. I try hard not to, but I do focus on the offenders because my purpose is to find out why they did what they did. And we want to learn about the victims too, so I try to incorporate as much information about them as I can and always talk about them respectfully. And there definitely are victim-centered podcasts where they say, okay, we're going to tell the story of Allison who was abducted. And mine is not. Mine is, I don't try to hide it. Mine is definitely an offender-focused podcast because the purpose is to talk about their psychology and what made them do what they did. Some experts say that consuming too much true crime can result in anxiety, paranoia, feeling unsafe, and suspicious of others, and that too much empathy with victims can cause emotional distress. This is actually a thing. I don't know so much if you are just a consumer, if you just read true crime, if you listen to it, if you like to watch it. But when you're a content creator, podcaster, writer, whatever, it does sometimes seem like I'm drowning in these people's misery when I'm researching a case. There can be a point, especially if it's a longer one, where I start to, I guess, take on the pain of the victims. And it's not a pretty sight. All of the victims of 
everybody that I've covered in the past two years. Can you believe it's been two years already? They all live in my head, rent-free. And I do think about them. To date, the one that has been the hardest on me was Daryl Brooks and the Waukesha Parade Massacre. One of my friends, I was talking to him about it. It's like, I'm like, I'm this case has me so, like, emotionally drained or something. And I don't know what it is about this case. I've done so many others, and nothing has ever bothered me like this one. And he said, could it be the immediacy of it? Because didn't that just happen? And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Like, literally, as he was going to trial, I was working on it. So I was watching all the court, and I do mean all, of the court footage and everything in real time. And the victims had only been gone for a year, so everything was fresh. And if I was covering something like um, a murder that happened 50 years ago, it wouldn't be so close in time. It wouldn't have been such a, a problem for me, I don't think. But in case you have ever wondered, does this stuff get to you? The answer is yes. Some cases definitely more than others. Some people for no apparent reason more than others. So anybody out there who's a fellow true crime content creator, it's very important that we take care of ourselves. You know, know when enough is enough. Know when to step back. I know it's easy for me to say, but know when to take a break, to take a walk, to watch a funny movie, or I have my go-to stupid things that I like to watch on TV that are just kind of inane, like those, um, does anybody know what Rift Tracks is or um, Mystery Science Theater 3000 movies on TV? Oh my God, they are so funny. But I asked Jens about some problems that you've noticed specific to podcasts, and I got some great answers. I definitely agree with this one. Humor. It can be inappropriate or excessive. There's a time and a place for humor. I think most of us would agree that a a joke or a funny comment, as long as it's not at a victim's expense and well-placed, is permissible. We all need a bit of levity if we're listening to something especially depressing or heavy. One I've noticed is the maturity of hosts. I'll be listening to a podcast, and I'm like, um, are you 10? You can't pronounce words. You're giggling. Seriously, how old are you? You sound like a child. I guess there's no age limit to have a podcast, but I think there should be. I know I swear a lot, but it's not gratuitous. There are many people who swear just to do it, just because they can. And you can tell those. It's like, you know, I have a podcast and I can say anything I want and F this and F that and F you and F me and F everybody and I'm cool because I can swear and um, no. A big pet peeve of mine and apparently of other people too is getting facts wrong. There's absolutely no excuse for this. This is due to bad research. They'll be like, oh, I use Wikipedia. Oh, and I'm like, really? And if you read my show notes, you'll see that Wikipedia is usually there. And what I use it for mainly is 
when I'm setting up the scene, when I'm saying, okay, today we're going to the city of whatever, I'll use Wikipedia for that, for small details about places or not anything major to do with the case, but just little details, pronouncing stuff wrong, especially names, especially victims' names. Again, there's no excuse. All you have to do is Google it. Here is a secret in case you didn't know it. If you come across a name or word and you don't know how to pronounce it, go to Google or any search engine and put in whatever the name is, pronounce or pronunciation. And it'll come up with usually little YouTube videos and you click on it. It'll be like how to pronounce whatever. You click on it and it'll give you at least one different pronunciation of it, even foreign words and places. One is not respecting people's anonymity, like using people's real names or address or other identifying details, especially with kids. These are things we don't need to know. Usually, a lot of times when I, Hugo Selinsky, the last case, I said he had two kids. I knew what their names are, but nobody else needs to know. Um, I just said he had a kid in this year and, and this year, and that's all we need to know. Oh, oh, he had three. Sorry. But we don't, we don't need to know that. There's things that, and it just comes with being professional, things that are important and things that people just don't need to know. Somebody mentioned hearing a podcast talking shit on another podcast host. I have heard this. I have never personally heard, well, no, I have. I take it back. The other podcast named the snide comments. Sometimes they mention them by name. Other times they don't. This is very immature and unprofessional. Usually we support each other. Another one is no original thoughts reading right from Wikipedia. You can tell when somebody's doing this. You can easily tell when somebody is reading words that aren't theirs. This is unethical in journalism because it can be considered plagiarism. The rule is, if you're quoting a book, website, etc., make sure you note the source of your quote. And I do this all the time. I say, okay, I'm going to read you a quote here from that such and such said it's in this book called blah, blah, blah. And here's the quote. or this quote is from a website. I'm always very aware of quotes. I wrote for the school newspaper back in high school. I don't know if that has anything to do with. And of course, I wrote a dissertation and you have to have everything perfect as far as your periods and your commas and your quotes and your citations. It's, it's horrible. It's a nightmare. But I guess it's kind of drill, drilled into me. And while we're on that subject, note your sources. I've actually heard a couple of podcasts that only have their sources if you're a Patreon. That is completely, totally ridiculous. All your sources should be right there for everybody to see. Okay, here's one that I've mentioned. Realize that victims and their family and friends may be listening and tell the story appropriately. Pronounce things correctly, especially names. Get facts right. Don't try to be funny if you're talking about something tragic or horrific. And this is kind of related. 
Don't victim blame or second-guess victims. I hear this too often. Sometimes it's blatant. Other times it's subtle. But this is a huge no-no. Like, oh, unfortunately, Donna made the wrong choice. She opened door A instead of door B. Do not say stuff like that. You are victim-blaming. Or, sadly, if she would have gone right home instead of stopping at the bar. It's not real blatant, but it's still second-guessing a victim in past tense, but you're still doing it. A big pet peeve that I have is when somebody, a podcast host, insinuates that somebody else was involved in a crime when this person was never arrested or charged. And I think you can probably think of some examples right off the top of your head. This could actually be slander. Also, something I don't like, I I will never do myself, is give opinions or discuss cases that haven't gone to trial. Referring, I see a lot of this going on, and you can probably guess what I'm talking about, referring to a suspect as the killer when the person has not been convicted. You cannot do that. I won't get involved with any of that. There's no reason for me to because my purpose is to talk about why people do things. And if something is unsolved, there's nothing for me to talk about. Probably, at least in my opinion, the biggest problem we have in true crime right now is internet sleuths. And you know what I'm talking about. These people have actually caused problems for police and other people. These are the people who have no lives, no hobbies, nothing better to do but sit on their computer and read about unsolved mysteries or missing people and try to help. And this help can be anything from calling the police or tip lines with unfounded tips to actually interfering in investigations to publicly accusing people of various things. Now, (laughs) oh my God, have you heard of this one? I saw it a couple nights ago on a YouTuber that I follow who does crime named Cheryl Lindell. She's very good, very respectful, professional. Well, she covered this and I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. This is about the murder of the four Idaho students. There was this moron woman on TikTok. She calls herself a psychic and a tarot card reader. She goes on TikTok. She did a quote-unquote reading and came up with the name of an actual professor at Idaho State University and publicly accused, I'm not going to use this poor woman's name, we've heard, it's been everywhere, publicly accused this woman of committing the murders which is absolutely ridiculous. This woman, this professor, they found out wasn't even in town when the murders happened, didn't even know any of these students. And fortunately, the professor is suing this crazy woman, and I hope she takes her for all she's worth. I really think that she's unstable or delusional or something. If you want to inflect this on yourself, you can look her up on TikTok. Her name is Ashley Guillard, G-U-I-L-L-A-R-D, or Ashley Solves Mysteries, and she says crazy stuff. That's why I'm thinking there's something wrong with her. 
to go on a public medium, you know, out in public, basically, say that this person killed this person with absolutely nothing to back it up. That is not only criminal, that is so disgusting. And uh, in this case, the Idaho case has seemed to bring out so much ugly behavior in people. It, it's just ridiculous. So what I want to ask is, if somebody murdered you, would you want a podcast host, author, etc., to cover your murder? My answer is yes, definitely. I want people to remember me. A hundred years from now, whatever medium we're, we're using then, I want people to know that there was this pug mom and hockey fan and podcaster in Pittsburgh who was killed. I want somebody to talk about what a horrible person whoever killed me was, because I'm sure if they killed me, they must be horrible, right? And I know exactly who I would want to talk about my murder. That's my friend Kimmy from Always Talking Crime. Kimmy, if you're listening, that's your assignment. Hopefully, you don't have to, because hopefully nobody ever murders me. But if they do, I want you to talk about my killer because I know that you will have some colorful things to say. I'm curious to know what Yins think. If you were murdered, would you want your murder talked about in public? Do you see any of these as being problems? Did I miss anything? What makes you interested in crime? Is there anything that I can do to be more, I guess, professional or respectful or anything that podcasters in general you think can do? Okay, um, I've never actually done this before, but next week, I know we did Pennsylvania last week. We're actually staying in Pennsylvania, and we're going to do a Pittsburgh case. Being from Pittsburgh, it's cool because I know the judges and the attorneys involved, not like no, like, you know, that I've schmoozed with them or anything like that, but I, I worked with them and all the places involved I'm familiar with. So hopefully I can bring more insight to the case. And it might be more than one part because you know me. Okay, I will see you next week. Class dismissed.